0: Hey, it's producer Joe DeSo. Chicago's factories were booming in the early 1900s, but conditions inside those factories were terrible. There was often little ventilation, and it was dirty. Disease and injuries were common. It was dangerous to go to work. But today we've got all kinds of laws guaranteeing a safe and healthy work environment. You know, where you won't be exposed to toxic chemicals like lead and exits that are easily accessible. And there's a woman whose groundbreaking work in Chicago is one of the reasons why these laws exist today. Her name was Alice Hamilton. The legacy of Alice Hamilton is something that has been a kind of North Star for us in occupational safety and health because she singularly focused on shedding light onto a problem that had been ignored or just not dealt with or not cared about it's likely you've never heard of her, even though her work has helped save millions of lives.
1: She was also involved in changes in legislation. She was involved in committees on state and national levels that were creating these very large-scale changes in
2: workers' rights and experiences.
0: So what was Alice Hamilton's impact on Chicago and around the country? Reporter Edie Rabinowitz dug into Alice's story and found some answers. Yes, we've
2: come a long way in the last half century.
1: In this 1950s interview, the the announcer is introducing his guest, a a trailblazing scientist, particularly when it came to safety in the industrial workplace, Alice Hamilton.
0: Dr.
2: Hamilton, who visited chemical factories where dangerous sulfuric acid bubbled in... She took
1: on leaders of industries and the industries themselves.
2: Walked through munition plants choking with the deadly fumes of nitric acid who spoke out against conditions that were causing lead and carbon monoxide poisoning.
1: Alice Hamilton would spend her life investigating those industries, even exposing herself to workplace toxins with the goal of protecting workers. She was one of the country's first researchers to examine problems associated with lead poisoning, an issue we're still dealing with now. Her interest in helping people started when she was a young girl. Alice grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where she was homeschooled and raised in a civically and intellectually engaged environment.
2: They would oftentimes have their lessons in the morning, and then the afternoon they would go out on their own initiative and reenact stories that they'd been reading about.
1: Matthew Ringenberg is the co-author of a biography of Alice Hamilton. He says the family was so civically minded that Hamilton's mother had even befriended prominent suffragettes like Susan B. Anthony, who would stay at the house when she was in town. Alice and her siblings were all raised to serve a purpose higher than themselves, sometimes at the cost of foregoing a family of their own.
2: So this idea that, one, women could do big things, and two, that because of their position in life, they had a real responsibility to serve, find meaningful ways to serve the world, were both embedded.
1: So Alice thought the way she could make a difference would be to become a doctor. As she wrote in her autobiography... I chose medicine not because I was scientifically minded, for I was deeply ignorant of science. I chose it because as a doctor, I could go anywhere I pleased, to far-off lands or to city slums, and be quite sure that I could be of use anywhere. This would mean going to medical school. But there was a problem. Alice hadn't been taught any science at home. Her dad didn't believe Alice or her brother and sisters needed science. But she didn't let this stop her. She convinced her dad to get her a tutor to teach her physics and chemistry, and she took classes in anatomy at the local medical school. Eventually, she got accepted into med school at the University of Michigan. When she was in med school, there were only 4,500 women physicians in all of the U.S. They were pioneers.
3: And they were the first generation of women who had access to higher education and the professions. And that Always seemed surprising to my students who didn't think women had done anything before the 1960s or 70s.
1: That's Barbara Sisherman, author of Alice Hamilton, A Life in Letters. It's a compilation of more than 100 letters Alice Hamilton wrote about her life.
3: Actually, these women had a great deal of success in the political world as well as in medicine and in academe.
1: Sishiman says after graduating medical school, Alice had to figure out what to do. She wanted to be a scientist rather than practice medicine, but there weren't a lot of opportunities. Eventually, she landed a teaching job at Northwestern. She was also living at Hull House, the settlement home in Chicago led by progressive reformer Jane Adams. It provided all kinds of services to immigrants and the poor. But she struggled at first at Hull House... She didn't feel like her expertise was useful or that she was meeting her own high standards. In one letter, she wrote, It got quite bad, and I had to go and hide myself, for fear I would cry if somebody spoke to me. Eventually, biographer Sisherman says Alice was able to begin to find her footing and purpose at Hull House by using her medical skills. She taught mothers about good hygiene for their babies. And this is when she really began what would become her life's work, applying science to help correct political, industrial, and societal injustices. Remember, in the early 1900s, checks on corporate and governmental wrongdoings were hard to come by. Sisherman says Hamilton got interested in industrial poisons.
3: because She saw people, men in the neighborhood in particular, getting sick.
1: What she saw troubled her deeply. So Alice began conducting her own scientific investigations. For example, in Chicago in 1902, there was a terrible outbreak of typhoid, a bacterial infection that can be deadly. Nobody knew where the disease came from or how it was spreading so fast. Alice began to roam the neighborhood to try to determine the source of the outbreak, documenting the unsanitary conditions she saw, including raw sewage with swarms of flies. Alice was so dogged in this kind of work, she became known for her shoe-leather epidemiology, wearing down one's shoe bottoms by walking, in her case, making visits to homes, hospitals, even saloons. One place where she had her work cut out for her was a factory.
2: She called it the worst place of employment that she ever investigated.
1: That story and her groundbreaking work on lead poisoning is next. Alice Hamilton had earned such a reputation for her scientific research and that shoe leather epidemiology that bigwigs downstate began to take notice. So much so that in 1910, the governor of Illinois appointed her to lead the newly formed Illinois Commission on Occupational Diseases. The commission was assigned to research toxins in factories. Alice's work with the commission focused on several toxins, including lead a toxin she kept encountering in her factory visits, and a toxin that still haunts Chicago today. Again, biographer Matthew Ringenberg.
2: If you're crushing lead or you're burning it or you have lead dust and you're pouring it onto some surface so that it could melt on there, there would be clouds of lead dust. And that's what the workers worked in the entire day.
1: Ringenberg explained that the lead dust permeated everything, even the workers' sandwiches. Workers had no masks and just wore their regular clothes. The factories were poorly ventilated. There were really no rules about lead. Author Sisherman points out that nobody understood that lead exposure could lead to illness, so nobody was paying attention to the
3: problem. This was a challenge for Alice. She said initially, it's like making one's way into a jungle, because nobody really knew what to correlate disease and work conditions. The hospitals were of little use. Even just deciding who had lead poisoning and who didn't was difficult. There were extreme cases, but medical records were relatively rare. Hospital records were rare.
1: And the companies forcing
3: people to work in these toxic environments?
1: Well, it's as if they just flat out didn't care.
3: So she really had to go and corral people because the factory people didn't really want her to investigate these things.
1: And she didn't stop there. Here she is, years ago, talking about one encounter she had with a factory owner who showed little regard for their workers' safety. She told them they were poisoning their workers, and
3: more. I remember talking to a manufacturer of white lead And he was a very fine man. He was really a philanthropist. But he said to me, do you mean to say that if a man gets lead poisoning in my plant, I'm to be held responsible?
1: Yes, yes, that's precisely what Alice meant. And she encountered this often, including when she visited one of the factories of the National Lead Company, which was run by a man
2: named Edward Cornish. She called it the worst place of employment that she ever investigated.
1: That's biographer Matthew Ringenberg again. He says Alice wasn't afraid to confront Cornish, or any number of company heads for that matter, and she would sometimes use her charm to disarm them.
2: He was one of those who expected nothing but compliments and was very defensive and said, OK, fine, if you can prove to me that my workers are dying because I don't think they are, I'll make changes, and he even asked. Like, there's a workman passing the office. He'd come in here. Is is this workplace poisoning you? And of course, he says no. And and she points this out to him. It's like, yes, he'd like to keep his job. He needs to have a paycheck.
1: Alice was persuasive. She came back to Cornish with proof of what was happening to his employees.
2: So she did throughout the course of her investigation, both in his factory specifically, but also statewide. Showed that a lot of these men, they were dying. They were neurological damage, uh, digestive system damage, and sometimes insanity, and, and many of them died. She prescribed a series of changes needed to make the
1: factory safer for employees. And finally...
2: A year, year and a half later, she came back, and he personally shows her around the factory and shows her all the things he had done to make it a safer work environment. And... She was so pleased and a bit surprised because he'd been one of the most antagonistic and he'd run one of the worst factories. But he cleaned it up and she referred to it as one of the top three or four factories that she investigated a second time around. So occasionally you'd have these stories where it made a huge difference.
1: Alice continued to investigate the connections between factory poisons and disease. Nadia Moraga, a museum educator at Hull House, says these studies led to major legislative reforms, and not just in Illinois. The work that she did formed the foundation for the majority of labor reform that was happening at that time. Because here she was doing the toxicology work and these inspections of these workspaces themselves. And Moraga says Alice's scientific research and advocacy had a long-term impact. Behind the scenes, she was also involved in changes in legislation. She was involved in committees on state and national levels that were creating these very large-scale changes in workers' rights and experiences. Alice's work with the Illinois Commission earned her a national reputation. In 1911, the federal government asked her to conduct a national study on lead in the industry. Alice became the top expert in the country on workplace toxins. Later, looking back on her work of those days, even the relentlessly modest Alice admitted her work was groundbreaking. She said, everything I discovered was new, and most of it was really valuable. And that was just the first half of her life. She would do much more. Here are a few highlights. At the age of 50, she went on to become the first woman appointed to the faculty at Harvard University, though they wouldn't give her football tickets or let her march in graduation. She retired at the age of 66, and while her investigation slowed down, her activism did not. She was outspoken against McCarthyism and the Vietnam War. That outspokenness earned her an FBI file that wasn't closed until she was 96. Alice died in 1970 at age 101. Three months later, President Nixon signed the legislation that led to the creation of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. Many say Hamilton's work was the key to the creation of that agency, which recently marked its 50th anniversary. Joseph Chip Hughes of OSHA says that he and others at the agency are inspired by Alice, especially during this pandemic that has taken the lives of so many frontline and essential workers.
0: The legacy of Alice Hamilton is something that has been a kind of North Star for us in occupational safety and health because she singularly focused on shedding light onto a problem that had been ignored or just not dealt with or not cared about.
1: And as Alice herself said at the age of 88, for me, the satisfaction is that things are better now, and I had some part of it.
0: Thanks to Edie Rubinowitz for that reporting. And by the way, this episode was based on a question we got from Julia Florick carlson She actually got so interested in Alice after visiting the Hull House Museum that she ended up doing a lot more research about her for a class project. She even won a History Fair award for it. Now she's a biochemistry major in college at Notre Dame with an interest in public health. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and is produced by Jason Mark and me. Adriana cardona McGigott is our reporter, and Maggie Civit is our digital and engagement producer. J.P. Swenson is our Luminary Fellow, and Johanna Zorn edits the show. I'm Joe Disseau. Thanks for listening.
1: Before we start the show...